For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in, like, you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I am Ben Rhodes, and this is a special episode uh, with so much attention on the situation uh, in Ukraine um, and so much speculation. Uh, and frankly, with the U.S. president uh, being pretty forthright in saying that he thinks Russia is not only going to invade Ukraine, but uh, try to conquer Ukraine's capital, Kiev, we thought that uh, it would be important to give you an update here. Um, so later in the show, we are going to hear from an extraordinary frontline reporter who's on the ground literally along the front lines in eastern Ukraine, uh, Christopher Miller uh, from BuzzFeed. And we're going to unpack with him what the scenarios there are on the east, what he's watching, what the recent developments are, because a lot of what has taken place in the last just couple of days, and I'm talking to Saturday morning here, has felt like exactly the pretext for war that Vladimir Putin would set up in eastern Ukraine. So just to, to summarize here, uh, because there have been a flurry of reports in the last uh, day or two, the pro-Russian separatist leaders of these breakaway regions of Ukraine, Luhansk and Donetsk, uh, have made a series of announcements. They've ordered the evacuation of uh, civilians to Russia uh, on Friday, accusing Ukraine of planning a large-scale military offensive. You saw women and children beginning to be bussed into Russia and you also saw Vladimir Putin indicating that uh, Russia was prepared to provide support, including you know, 10,000 rubles to these refugees coming into Russia. Um, and so that felt like there was some pre-planning behind this. Um, there are also metadata that was analyzed of the videos that these leaders released that suggested that even though they were acting like they were responding in real time to events, uh, that these videos were recorded as long as a couple days ago. Um, so it definitely feels staged, definitely feels pre-planned, definitely feels like what the Biden team was warning about. This continued to escalate into today um, as those leaders called for a mobilization of all military age men uh, in those regions. So if you're a guy from 18 to, I think, 55, you can't leave because you're being called up to serve in the war. Uh, if you're anybody else, I think, you know, you can get out. Meanwhile, Russian television is kind of in a frenzy reporting on ethnic cleansing, uh, genocide against Russian speakers or ethnic Russians um, in eastern Ukraine. Uh, again, another very likely pretext uh, for war being that Russia has to protect these people from the Ukrainians. Obviously, this, these reports aren't true, but we've seen also some things getting blown up in eastern Ukraine. Um, you know, One, for instance, being the car of one of these uh, Russian separatist leaders kind of a, felt very much like a staged assassination attempt that they were trying to show the world or, or show on Russian television, at least. So that's what's going on in eastern Ukraine that feels like this pretext. Uh, meanwhile, um, Russian President Putin on Saturday presided over the test launching of three ballistic and cruise missiles that were part of what was called a, a nuclear deterrence exercise. So kind of flexing reminding the world that Russia is a nuclear power. Um, he was joined by the president of Belarus, uh, President Lukashenko, 
um, you know, kind of his supplicant uh, in the room at the time. Should note, importantly, Lukashenko uh, and Belarus officials are now announcing that Russian troops will not leave um, Belarus as planned uh, under Russia's military exercises. So the idea that this has all been an exercise, nobody's even making that uh, excuse anymore. The U.S. uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said Saturday that he felt it's clear Russia had made a decision and was moving its uh, military into positions to conduct an attack on Ukraine. He said, quote, they're uncoiling and now poised to strike. Um, The diplomacy continues insofar as there's diplomacy. And and a lot of center of gravity there has been at the Munich Security Conference, where Vice President Harris is leading the U.S. delegation, vowed in a speech that there will be swift, severe, and united response if Russia invades Ukraine, made uh, mention of certain sanctions, including on on Russian banks. Uh, Ukraine's President Zelensky flew uh, to that um, summit. We'll see if he gets back into Ukraine. Um, uh, Kind of a uh, a risky decision by his part. He kind of doubled down while he was there on Ukraine's uh, desire to join NATO. So no indication that he is uh, backing down on Russia's core demands. Um, But the most dramatic statement, I think, of the last um, day was President Biden uh, speaking from the White House uh, late yesterday afternoon, um, in which he was uh, as forward-leaning as he's been to date about what he thinks is happening. Let's give it a listen. We have reason to believe the Russian forces are planning to uh, and intend to attack Ukraine in the coming week, in the coming days. We believe that they will target Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, a city of 2.8 million innocent people. We're calling out Russia's plans loudly and repeatedly, not because we want a conflict, but because we're doing everything in our power to remove any reason that Russia may give to justify invading Ukraine and prevent them from moving. Okay, so that was not a particularly caveated statement, um, you know, uh, and, and what he's describing there is the worst case scenario, which is a Russian invasion that's not just the kind of escalation in eastern Ukraine uh, that I'll be talking about with Christopher Miller here in a minute, um, but rather the full scale invasion, the toppling of the Ukrainian government, the, the conquering of, as President Biden reminds us, a city of, of nearly three million people, uh, which would mean a lot of suffering, a lot of death. What are the key takeaways uh, for me uh, from the last 48 hours? Um, number one, it just feels like this thing is happening. Um, uh, and, and, and here's why. Um, first, because as I alluded to earlier, this is precisely the pretext that Putin would use to justify an invasion. And, and you kind of heard, you've heard everybody from Tony Blinken to Jake Sullivan to Ned Price, the State Department spokesperson, Speaking about exactly these types of scenarios, kind of staged attacks in eastern Ukraine where the Russians control some space, right? So they can they can blow up some infrastructure themselves and claim that the Ukrainians did it, and then they can gin up their propaganda machinery. And, and if you're thinking to yourself and watching this, this is pretty hackish, right? Like these dudes are they're taping videos days in advance, and they're not trying that hard to make the pretext look real to independent observers you know, like you. Um, I think an important thing to note there is that Putin may not just give a shit how uh, effective his pretext looks, right? I mean, the, I credit the Biden team for being out in front and and putting all this information out to, to make it harder for Putin to, to, to run a play for a global audience that suggests that um, you know, the Ukraine was somehow the aggressor. But we also have to remember that Putin may not care anyway. You know, it's, he may not be deterred in any way by the fact that the U.S. is putting out its plans. And and the fact that they're going ahead 
with the exact scenario that the U.S. has already blown the whistle on kind of demonstrates that not giving a shit, you know, and not giving a shit in general is one of Vladimir Putin's strengths and weaknesses. It is who he is, right? And so they seem to be running a play that they probably designed a few weeks ago um, in terms of claiming genocide against ethnic Russians and making some things blow up and having these Russian pawns get out there and and, and say that war has come and, and we have to fight back um, and inevitably probably call for Russian support. That's what's worrying to me about it is just how much they like, they're not adjusting their plans because they feel like, you know, they were out it. Um, they're just doing what they were probably planning to do all along if they wanted to have a ramp into an escalation. So that's the first point. I think the, the second point is when the president of the United States says that they're, you know, we have information they're going to take Kiev. That is not a statement he would make if that was not, I think, a high confidence judgment of the U.S. intelligence community. I just say that as someone who, you know, consumed intelligence, it does not feel like he was speaking offhand or committing a gaffe here. Um U.S. intelligence evaluates a lot of different things, and it's not just overhead imagery. You know, it's 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 intercepted communications, it's 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 analysis of what uh, is flowing to the border, it's probably analysis of what you know Russian groups like the Wagner Group, that's you know the paramilitary outfit that Russia's used in the Middle East and Africa. Are those guys going back um, to the region? Are they going into Eastern Ukraine? Are there Russian um, intelligence agents inside of Ukraine and what are they doing? Uh, what are the pro-Russian Ukrainian politicians doing? Um, uh, all of these are the types of, of things that you would look at, never mind whatever intel you may be able to get on Vladimir Putin himself. And clearly this whole picture suggests to the United States an inevitability of, of the larger invasion. And so I think we have to take that seriously. And which brings me to the last point, which is diplomacy. And you heard Biden say, well, there's still a chance for diplomacy. And everybody says that, uh, and they should, to the to the bitter end. Um, but here's the problem. I don't know what the room is right now because Russia issued its formal written responses to the U.S. written responses to the original Russian demands, right? And Russia reiterated in those written responses that Ukraine can never be a member of NATO, that these these breakaway regions in eastern Ukraine essentially have to, to have a veto over all Ukrainian foreign policy, that... Uh, NATO has to pull back from Eastern Europe. Um, you know, can't have any you know NATO presence uh, in, in in the Eastern European countries that joined NATO in the late '90s and uh, early 2000s. That's the Russian position. Zelensky today reiterated that Ukraine wants to join NATO. NATO has actually increased the number of troops uh, in Eastern Europe as we speak. There are thousands of American troops in Poland who weren't there a couple weeks ago. So somebody would have to back down significantly here. You know, like either Russia would have to essentially, you know, give up on all of its demands uh, around NATO and and U.S. And, and NATO force posture and just kind of act like these were all just a bunch of military exercises and that the genocide of, of Russians in, in that they allege, it's not true, in eastern Ukraine is is something that they're not doing anything about differently than they did before. Or Ukraine would have to completely change its position and say, no, we're, we've actually decided we're not going to join NATO or we're going to implement an agreement that allows these separatist regions to have a veto on our foreign policy or, or the U.S. or other NATO countries would have to say that. And it just doesn't feel like that's happening. And so it's hard to see, you know, you look for those paths off like a highway into a war. And, and I just don't see the, the off-ramps uh, at this point. So 
I hope there are. <laughs> I hope, to, I, I mean, for the sake of the people of Ukraine, for the sake of the world, for the sake of the consequences I think we would even feel in the U.S. from this war, I hope it's the case that it doesn't happen. But it just certainly feels like uh, this is where we're headed. And that's, that's one of the reasons why we had this episode. Now, one of the things I talked to, 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 to Christopher Miller here about in a moment is that that war could be the, the full scale invasion and the effort to take Kiev and all, all the rest of the consequences we got into a few days ago on the pod, or it could be something that's much more Eastern focused. Uh, and I think it's important for us to hear that scenario because that, um, that, that's quite possible as well. So when we come back, we'll have uh, my interview with Christopher Miller from BuzzFeed. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay. Leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. <laughs> Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. I'm very pleased to be joined now by Christopher Miller. He is a correspondent for BuzzFeed News covering national security and extremism. Uh, he's also a, a deep expert on Ukraine, and he is currently talking to us from Kharkiv, Ukraine, which is uh, along uh, Ukraine's eastern uh, border. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
So uh, let's just start with like, what have you been up to the last couple of days? It, it feels like, and, and we'll get into the fact that it feels kind of like the pretext that, you know, would have been the most likely one for Russia to gin up uh, has been ginned up in the part of the world where you are right now in eastern Ukraine. Um, but what have you been up to the last day or two? What have you seen? Who have you talked to? Yeah, I think that's right. You know, the last, I would say, handful of days have felt um, more, much more intense than than the last month. You know, there, there has been a sort of steady buildup um, of 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 this 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 tension leading to something possibly an invasion an incursion attack of some sort um you know certainly and I, i've been back here after after living here for 11 years i've been back here now for uh almost a couple of months and you know, I've, I've spent part of january on the front line and then yesterday was back in uh the town of marinka which is uh just a few miles from donetsk on the front line and just between my first visit in in this January uh, and now, there has been a pretty steady increase in the number of attacks, artillery bombardments, the number of casualties on the front line. So we're seeing a pretty significant increase in fighting, which is different than we've seen in the past couple of years. I mean, throughout most of the pandemic and even uh, a few years prior, it's been mostly a simmer on the front line. The front line has been uh, static. Trenches have been dug. The line has not really moved since uh, these Minsk agreements were signed back in February 2015. So for you know seven years now, it's it's been a war of attrition, mostly trench warfare that sometimes resembles World War II. Uh, if you throw in some new technology like drones and some higher uh, powered weapons, some, some more modern weaponry. Um, but, you know, in Marinka, speaking with the soldiers there, speaking with the soldiers in three other frontline towns in January, everybody is saying that since November, when this Russian military buildup began, that the intensity mm. has uh, slowly increased. And now we are seeing an amount of shelling and an intensity in fighting that is more close to the type of heavy fighting that we saw in 2015, 2016. We're not quite at the level of all-out war that we saw in spring, summer of 2014, which was really intense casualties, deaths in the dozens, if not hundreds, on an almost daily or weekly basis. And you know, hopefully we don't get to that point. Uh, but it, it, there are a lot of people who fear we're heading in that direction, that if Vladimir Putin does decide to launch an attack, things could very quickly escalate and and go beyond even what it looked like in 2014, which was, you know, indiscriminate, uh, multiple launch rocket systems, artillery that's decades old and very imprecise. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's a real fear here that higher tech weaponry and possibly even airstrikes could be used. And a lot of the talk among the military here uh, has to do with the uh, military materiel that the Russians are placing around the borders. Um, for, yeah. for instance, I'm in the city of Kharkiv, like you mentioned. I'm only 20 miles from the border here. And just on the other side, you've got um, you know, several battle tactical groups. Uh, these are battle-hardened soldiers that are ready for ground warfare. But you've also got attack helicopters um, in in uh, Belarus, which is uh, you know just to the northwest of here, 
And in some places um, uh, in, in Russia, also uh, northeast of here, you've got um, uh, besides these helicopters, you've got you've got other um, attack aircraft. And so there is now this real sense of, you know, uh, a major war looming in yeah. a way that, you know, the Ukrainians were much more skeptical about even weeks ago. Yeah. So. So tense. And uh, in the last couple of days, what we've seen is the separatist leaders and put that in kind of air quotes, uh, but the, the, the Russian backed separatist leaders of Donetsk and Luhansk. These are the two territories of eastern Ukraine that, that Russia has kind of de facto tried to not annex, but uh, at least carve out from uh, Ukraine and use it as leverage to control Ukrainian politics. Um, those leaders made statements that there was a looming invasion coming from Ukraine. Then we saw what felt like staged efforts at you know, sabotage attacks on infrastructure or, or, or assassination attempts uh, in Luhansk and Donetsk. Um, and then we heard calls for both refugee flows into Russia from, you know, women and children uh, from uh, Luhansk and Donetsk to kind of create the impression that these people are under assault. And then we heard about a military mobilization where uh, kind of military aged men are not allowed to leave those regions. What's going on? Um, what is your read on this? And 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 maybe explain to our uh, listeners who might not follow the twist in terms of this too closely. Like who who are these two leaders, and 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 on what basis do people kind of think they talk? You know, are they are they speaking for themselves? Are they mouthpieces for uh, uh, for Putin? Uh, what what do you make of these events? Yeah. So plainly put, the leaders of the what are called the Donetsk and Lugansk. Uh, "Quote unquote People's Republics are yeah, kind of throwback, yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, they they are merely figureheads. Essentially, they are proxy leaders, um, you know, working under the direction of Moscow. They, yeah. you know, they're 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 not the first leaders um, to to uh, be at the heads of these self proclaimed republics, which really are, um, I mean, just occupied territories that Russia does control. I mean, Russia controls every, every, every element of, I mean, everything that happens within the Donetsk and Lugansk areas that are not controlled by Ukraine. And just to give you a sense yeah. of scale here, that's about the, the area that's under occupation right now is about the size of uh, the state of New Jersey, um, yeah. maybe just a little bit underneath. So it's a large, this is a large you know, piece, of, piece of land. These are not the first leaders the uh, previous leaders were assassinated under very murky circumstances. Um, you know, there are some people who believe uh, Ukrainian special uh, operations forces knocked them off. And there are others who believe that they had become um, a little too ambitious and that uh, Moscow may have done away with them themselves. And so yeah. the leaders that we see now in Donetsk and Lugansk are people that have been handpicked by the Kremlin because they can be controlled. They're not ambitious. They they merely want to behave as though they're these heads of um, states. Uh, in reality, yeah. these states are totally fictitious. None, nobody in the world recognizes them, and, and Moscow controls every facet. And uh, what we're seeing now in all of these reports that you mentioned about um, mass evacuations and uh, attacks from the Ukrainian side on these territories are pretty classic examples of these disinformation campaigns that Russia 
and these uh, republics use to try to paint Ukrainians as the ones that are wanting to go on the offensive, as the aggressors. Uh, they use words like genocide and toss them around like pretty willy nilly. Um, yeah. You know, they 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 say that Ukraine uh, and, and the Ukrainian military is conducting a genocide of uh, Russian ethnic Russians and Russian speaking people, and that is because Russia has handed out Russian passports to several hundred thousand yeah. people on these territories, and a vast majority of the people in eastern Ukraine speak Russian as their first language. Ukraine is a, a, a bilingual country, at least. Yeah, and um, and we know, should the, make clear that 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 is not happening. You know that that, that no, that correct, and that's what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah, you know, this is yeah. this is not happening. Like these are these are uh, false flag operations. This is uh, disinformation, and all of it is being done in order to try to create a pretext for a potential Russian invasion, a new Russian invasion. You know, um, they're they are. Um, uh, creating these uh, these videos that um, s- several journalists and open source investigators over the last 24 hours have found to be f- uh, made well in advance. Um, yeah. the, the, the videos are being posted, uh, you know, um, and and meant to show events in real time. In reality, they were they were filmed yeah. uh, at least two days ago. Uh, which certainly suggests that this is some kind of uh, disinformation campaign, um, and it's all being waged, you know, to to justify uh, a, a potential a potential attack and to lay the groundwork for Russia to say, well, now we need to go in. We need to protect ethnic Russians and Russian speakers, which is something that Putin has said for years. You'll remember, I mean, back in yeah. two thousand. Eight, 10, that was 12, the Crimea 11, pretext, you know. yeah, yeah. Right, exactly, exactly. It's you no know, matter where Russian speakers are in the world, we are the protector yeah. of Russian speakers, and so you know we will go anywhere they need protection and, and do whatever needs to be done. And so that's the kind of pretext that they're um, they're, they're creating in order to be able to say this. Um, you know, and we don't know if Putin yeah. has made that decision yet, but you know, all of these reports are piling up now, and it may just be. Uh, a matter of time before we sort of get to that threshold where, okay, now it's time to to take that decision. And I mean, it's hard to say what what is the what here, because it could be, and I, we'll get into kind of a couple of scenarios. It could be kind of a much larger scale assault on Ukraine, taking out and disabling its, uh, you know, everything from its uh, air defenses to its, you know, uh, uh, energy grid but if it's there if it's concentrated there it seems like the mobilization of what you were describing earlier those attack helicopters the use of air power basically the use of the kind of of weaponry and units that have not been a part of the fighting to date that would be the sign that this is tipped over right absolutely absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. there are a lot of ways that this can go and we can get into that if you'd like you know i mean certainly the war in donbass is is where there could very well be an intensification at first, yeah, and and you know, uh, setting things off there. We're we're in an already very heavily militarized and fortified area. Would be a very easy way to just you know, turn turn, turn up the heat and and get things started. But where people are really looking, um, and what they're really worried about is what's happening uh, in Eddie Crane's northern border. Uh, and and uh, to the south, where Russia has not only its um, uh, troops on Crimea, uh, but also in the Black Sea and um, naval forces in the Sea of Azov too. Well, I, w- I wanted to ask you one uh, one question before getting to that 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 potentially bigger scenario, which is, I think everybody, including President Biden yesterday, has been focused on the scenario where 
Russia makes a play for Kiev and essentially is really trying to kind of conquer a chunk of Ukraine, overthrow the government and kind of control uh, things entirely. There's always been like a potential for a, a more Eastern Ukraine focused scenario, you know, for instance, taking those two regions and kind of formally recognizing their independence or even annexing them or moving in more Russian forces to kind of connect geographically uh, Crimea, the Crimean Peninsula to the the parts of the Donbass that, that Russia is already in. Or even, you know, by the way, if they really want to you know make a play for the you know, not that it, it has huge economic benefit, but if they really want to cement this kind of idea of Russian, ethnic Russian and Russian majority speaking territories being Russian, the city where you're in, Kharkiv, which is a big city, but uh, it's a predominantly, I think, Russian speaking city. What what do you, as someone who's covered that, that war for so long, what do you see as the, as that that the, the eastern focus scenario if 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 putin ends up not going all the way into kiev but wants to kind of solidify his position what are the types of scenarios that you you watch over there sure you know there's um uh what many people would be uh, would, would consider the sort of like low hanging fruit of these options and that is just to really turn up the dial in eastern ukraine where there already is a war in these uh, uh regions of donetsk and lugansk and extend uh, the territory there that is controlled to the full uh, border, uh, to, to the full um, region of Donetsk and Lugansk. Right now, if you think of Donetsk and Lugansk, um, they're, they're, they're called oblasts. If you think of them as states, right, about half of Donetsk and Lugansk states are um, occupied by uh, Russia-controlled entities, and the rest are under Ukrainian-controlled entities. And in um, the Russian understanding and in the understanding of the Russia-led separatist groups, all of Donetsk and Lugansk regions are, uh, in their yeah. eyes, meant to be a part of their territory. So there are people who believe that you know trying to push through the Ukrainian lines and take over the rest of those two regions are a possibility. Now, to do just that, I find um, you know that... It, it would be m- much more of a headache for Russia um, to j- focus um, really on those. Plus, you're not getting that much out of it in the end. Yeah. You know, this is the yeah. most militarized, heavily fortified uh, part of Ukraine. Um, you know, Ukrainian forces there greatly outnumber any other position um, and, and location in the rest of the country. And there's not a whole lot left in Donetsk and Lugansk oblasts that would really be worth taking. Um, the 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 main the main like key focus in Donetsk would be far 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 to the southeast in the city of Mariupol, which is this really yeah. uh, important uh, port city for for Ukraine that would allow Russia to then um, push a little further um, west toward Crimea and its Crimean forces to push east in order to create yeah. this land bridge. So if if that is the goal, then you know, we will see a lot of action in the South. I think the goal then would not be to take over uh, necessarily all of Donetsk and Lugansk regions to the North, but to make a very serious push um, South, um, swinging uh, West uh, toward Crimea to create that land bridge. 
um, you know, it's if you look at where the forces are um, amassed and, and they are everywhere, um, you know, around around Ukraine, just about. Uh, but the other place is, you know, uh, north and northeast of where I am in Kharkiv. And that yeah. could also play a role in this eastern scenario. And so, you know, Kharkiv is a city of a million plus people. It's known as yeah. Ukraine's second city. Um, that's because it is it, it used to be a, a Ukrainian capital many, 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 you know, years ago, years yeah. back. But it's also heavily industri- uh, industrialized. Um, they have a tank factory here. They've got other heavy industries and there are um, uh, there, there's a large population of Russian speakers. Um, that's true. Um, but you know there are a lot of people who um, have family just across the border. You know, the, like I said yeah. at, at the top of this, that we're only 20 miles from the border here. And before the war began, people could very easily just come and go. You could go see your brother or your friend, you know, just for yeah. an afternoon and come and come right back. It would be it's you know it's easier than going from DC to Philadelphia. Right. And, um, you know, that's now not the case. And, you know, the um, the sort of um, relationship that people here had with Russia is that doesn't before the war doesn't really exist. But there are still many people here, more in many other regions that are sympathetic to to Russia or um, not convinced that Kiev has their best interest at heart. And, you know, this could be a place where. Russia believes they'll find fertile ground in fomenting, um, you know, unrest and um, attacking and, and, and trying to occupy Kharkiv. Um, you know, I think they're wrong in that assessment, but they would, you know, they're not necessarily getting objective uh, intelligence or information, you know. Um, and so this is one area that people uh, in the Ukrainian um, uh, presidential administration and the military and certainly people on the ground here are very worried about uh, being one of the first targets, um, you know, it's uh, it's 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 also not heavily fortified at the borders. Um, you know, again, yeah. Donetsk and Lugansk Oblast trenches, bunkers. I mean, major military bases and installations down there. Um, and if Ukraine wants to wheel them out or needs to wheel them out, a lot of artillery, tanks, armor, that sort of thing. There's a yeah. presence of that here, but it's not going to be as much. Plus, you've got you know a border, uh, an actual international border with Russia that is just not heavily fortified. The border guards yeah. there have dug uh, tank trenches, but even, you know, in, in, in my interviews with them, they say these are really only meant to slow things down to yeah. give us some extra time to, you know, call in help or, you know, notify whoever we need to notify that things are now starting to stream over the border. Um, you know, so I, I think that the Eastern scenario is, is, um, if you're looking just at Donetsk and Lugansk, I think there's not a lot in it for Russia if they just try to take those oblasts. If they want, yeah. if the goal is to create that land bridge to make things easier for, uh, you know, the, the the residents of Crimea and for for Russia to um, uh, to to have uh, you know better transport there um, to help funnel water there um, and for other various strategic reasons, then I think you know that that point in the south. Um, is going to be key. They could also, you know, attack up here in Kharkiv just because of, you know, those many reasons that I said, but uh, also to spread the military thin, right? Yeah. Um, that's yeah. the other thing that's being discussed. And it, this is, if it happens, the Ukrainian we military. don't know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If, if it happens, one, one uh, strategy could be to attack in multiple places in order to spread Ukraine's military uh, thin and force it to respond in the north, in the east, in the south, 
which would also give Russia an advantage too. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. I wanted to ask you, as someone who's kind of been there for, you know, really since you know, off and on, but for, for the bulk of the time since this all started in 2014, you know, we've got people at the Munich Security Conference, including President Zelensky, you know, uh, making speeches. Uh, you've got Vladimir Putin at, you know, very large tables with, you know, Lukashenko. And, uh, uh, you know, you've got all this geopolitical intrigue but these are the people who live there, you know, in Eastern Ukraine. What do they think about this? Like, are they are they sick of it? Are they? And I, I know you can't really generalize, but like, is the sense of like pride in that we are standing up for something here in Eastern Ukraine? Is there a sense of some of the population is sympathetic to Russia and doesn't understand why Ukraine won't just say we won't join NATO, or or do they just not think about that because they're thinking about their daily lives and just hope that 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 things don't get more violent. I mean, how would you describe the the interactions with the, the people that are so absent from the kind of conversation about their future and all these, you know, high castles out there? It's going to um, differ quite a bit depending on where you are in the country. Yeah. If if you are, we can start in, in, in the war zone, for example, uh, where I just was yesterday and I've spent a significant amount of time since the war began. Um, you know, people in Eastern Ukraine are tired of the conflict. They They want peace. And if, you know, I, I would say a majority of people you speak to on the ground will say they want peace on any terms. They've been yeah. living with war for eight years. And, and that doesn't mean the, um, uh, you know, the occasional shell falling nearby. Like it is a militarized area. There yeah. is no local civilian government. It is a military government. Um, they have to cross checkpoints every single day to go to the grocery store, to go to medical appointments. Uh, school buses, like the one that I saw yesterday, um, that that was uh, near this uh, place where a shell had had, had exploded and uh, um, shrapnel sprayed this woman in her abdomen and her hand, um, have to travel through mm-hmm. checkpoints and what is what on, on through a street that is known as Sniper's Alley, you know, and yeah. there was a school bus with like twenty some odd children 
And I found that really jarring. Like I was, I was yeah. pulling out of the city shortly after an artillery bombardment and there's this bus full of kids yeah, driving that, by and yeah. you speak to the parents. And like, I spoke with this, this woman whose uh, uh, third grade daughter goes to this school and she's, you know, she started crying, became very emotional in talking about, you know, the, the threat of a larger war um, happening yeah. again. You know, she described, you know, 2014 and 15 as hell, um, you know, and, and just being exhausted. And, you know, I put the question to her, like, are you even able to like, think about the future to plan for anything? And, yeah. you know, she, she says, you know, on good days, I, I'm paraphrasing, uh, you know, on, on good days, I think about the future and I think about, you know, what my daughter could do and what she could be and where we could go if war ended. But there's no sign of the end of, of this war. Instead, you know, we're talking about the possibility of it escalating and becoming much, much worse. Like the best option yeah. here seems to be almost the status quo uh, for a lot of people, right? This slow war of attrition that uh, escalates from time to time and then and then ebbs and is quiet for a couple of years. Um, so that's, that's, you know, what people in the East think. If you are in Kiev, you know, the war can feel like it's really far away. Um, you know, yeah. it's it's a yeah. few hundred miles from the war zone. Um, it feels, you know, it, oftentimes like any other European city, everybody's going to the Philharmonic. You're going to the opera. People go to cafes, yeah. clubs. There's discos that go all night and raves that are some of the best in Europe. And they go on regardless of what the situation is like on the front line. Um, yeah. You know, there I could list for you dozens of really fantastic restaurants that would be better than a lot of the places that <laughs> yeah. you would go in Berlin or Paris. Even. Yeah. Um, and, you know, these days uh, it's getting a little bit more tense, like people are going to um, uh, firearms training. They're learning first aid. They're learning self-defense. They're packing go bags so they can leave at a moment's notice. At the same yeah. time, they're calm. They're they're not panicking. And you know, they are worried about what may or may not happen. Um, but they want peace on Ukraine's terms. They they don't yeah. want peace at any cost. Uh, they, they really uh, do not want the West to push it into some kind of agreement uh, with Russia. That would mean very serious concessions. That would yeah. mean pro-Russian politicians controlling the country or... Uh, the territories of Donetsk and Lugansk in the east having some sort of veto power over what happens in the country's parliament. And, yeah. you know, so they are ready to fight and resist. And I'm not talking solely about the military, but civilian people who are forming these territorial defense brigades, which are essentially uh, just unofficial militias, even though there's there's now some control over, over them um, through uh, city uh, administrations. Uh, but you know their their mood uh, and and views on this are a little bit are a little bit different. And then the further west you go, the more like staunchly European you get. Like Lviv is this place yeah. where many people believe is safe haven and will uh, go largely untouched if there is a large scale Russian offensive. Um, and it it's uh, you know right there. That's on the where the U.S. embassies and Hungary. And the, yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. The, you know the U.S. embassies, the small core team is now based there. Same with the U.K. Yeah. Um, several other Western embassies. There are some international companies that have moved over there, and there are some Ukrainians who are packing up and leaving. 
the east or uh, the northeast where I am or even in Kiev and moving west to just temporarily relocate for a little while. And they are, uh, I would say, even, uh, you know, anti, very anti-Russian, um, certainly anti-Putin, um, very um, patriotic, nationalistic um, in, in their viewpoints. And, uh, you know, they certainly want um, uh, peace solely on Ukraine's terms. Um, you know, they are worried about what might happen, but they also feel as though they're very far away from the war. And, and I was just over there. And, um, you know, there really was quite a difference, even from Kiev uh, yeah. in, in Western, in Western um, Ukraine. Um, that's changed in the last couple of weeks, just with the embassies, uh, the Western embassies and U.S. embassy in particular, relocating people over there. And they're now talking about, you know, evacuation points and um, yeah. uh, exits to the European Union. Um, so hopefully that gives you a little bit of a perspective of how yeah, oh, things yeah, kind of swing east thing. east to west. You know, there is there is a scale. And, you know, Ukraine is a really complex and um, much more diverse country than I think people give it credit for. And, um, you know, there is no real easy way to sort of generalize things yeah. here. So the last question for you is, uh, you know, uh, you, you clearly have like an investment in this place. You spend a bunch of time there. You clearly must know a lot of people there. What are, what are what are your emotions like at this point, and and what are your plans, you know, if things do escalate? I mean, how, put this in the context for someone who's who may not know much about Ukraine. Like, what, what, why have you felt so attached to this place, and and what's it like having felt that attachment to to be in the moment that you're in? Yeah, I mean, I'm 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 certainly you know really invested in the story. I've been in Ukraine since March 2010, and you know, I've, I've, I've made my career here. I've made a lot of friends here. Uh, I, I, I would really like to see this story out and that could be, you know, a yeah. year down the road or many years down the road. Um, I am so invested that I do hope at some point I will see some kind of resolution to, to the conflict. Um, you know, I, I try to really focus on my work. Um, yeah. that's not to be, you know, at the same time, like I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not cold. I'm not, yeah. you know, stoic. You, have to. you, you know, yeah. in the face of this, yeah. um, you know, it does it does affect me. And there are days where you know I I feel it a lot more. Um, and uh, you know, I, I have to take a, a a few deep breaths and 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 just um, remember uh, to sort of like you know consider where I am and the situation that I'm in. I'm also yeah. I'm also not alone here. I have a small team. Um, you know, that includes a, a fixer and a driver and a photographer, and I have to think about their safety. And so yeah. even if I might want to rush to, you know, uh, someplace east or north to cover something, I have to consider, you know, the other people with me and what kind of danger and uh, risk that poses to them. Um, yeah. Something that's, that's, that's gotten to me a little bit more uh, in the last couple of weeks is a lot of my Ukrainian friends reaching out to me for, for answers what do yeah, you know that we yeah. don't know? What yeah. what is going to happen? Where is it going to happen? How can we prepare ourselves? You know, for the, for the most most of the last few months, Ukrainians have been very calm. They haven't panicked, and if you speak to them about you know the latest Russian threat and the Russian buildup, especially in the context of um, Washington's messages and Western news coverage, they yeah. would kind of you know toss their head back 
scoff maybe and say, look, we've been living with war for a long time. We know how to deal with this. Like, just let us do our thing. But something shifted in the last week, maybe a little yeah. bit more. And and they're really starting to, um, I think, to, to grasp the severity of the situation. Or, I mean, most of them knew that, that this was serious. But I think I think this, you know, maybe feeling as though we're edging much closer to to something and 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 the chances of it happening rising they're getting nervous they're calling me they're writing me and asking you know what should we do with like any advice yeah and it's been tough to say i really don't know like i i don't yeah. know what's going to happen yeah. and i don't know what you should do i think you need to you need to think about what's best for you. And, you know, what is best for me is going to be very different than what is best yeah. for you because yeah. I'm I'm not trying to leave. I'm I'm not planning an evacuation unless things get so very bad that yeah. I absolutely need to find a way out. You know, my my role in this is to stay here, to observe, to report, yeah. and um, you know, to stay alive and all of that. Uh, and and you know, um I'm not, I'm not a Ukraine. I'm not, I'm not a civilian. I don't have roots here. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I, I tried to make that as clear as I, as I can to my friends and, and, um, provide them at least with the information that I can, uh, you know, but ultimately it's up to them. And I think that's been one of the hardest things in the last couple of weeks that I've had to deal with. I bet. I bet. I bet. Well, look, we appreciate you giving us your perspective and, uh, you know, stay, stay safe and well out there as you can. And, and, you know, maybe we'll, we'll keep in touch here. Yeah, let's do it. Thanks for having me. Thank you to Christopher Miller for giving us that perspective. You can follow him, uh, not just at Buzzfeed, but, uh, he's a good Twitter follower at Christopher JM. Thank you, uh, for tuning in here. Uh, we'll be back. Uh, at our regularly scheduled program with, I'm sure, a lot more to talk about in a couple of days. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, and Phoebe Bradford, who film and share our episodes as videos each week. Hold up. 